All right, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today, my guest is Bill Ware. He's a vibraphone player, a jazz vibraphonist, who played with the groups Groove Collective and uh, the Jazz Passengers. Before that, uh, he's appeared on albums by everyone from Elvis Costello to Debbie Harry and many, many others along the way. Uh, And of course, yes, He played with Steely Dan. He was in the band in 1993 and 94 on those first few reunion tours. Uh, And of course, he's credited on the 1995 Steely Dan live album, Alive in America. And, you know, I personally became aware of him by watching some of those concert DVDs of uh, 93 shows. You know, if you watch them, there's this guy just killing it on the vibes. You know, taking some big vibraphone solos on songs like Counter Moon and Fall of 92. Uh, Incredible performances, just very charismatic with uh, a great sort of showmanship. I can absolutely see what Donald and Walter were drawn to uh, and why they added Bill to the band. Anyway, I tracked Bill down because uh, I wanted to see if he'd be willing to join the pod and talk about his experiences touring with Steely Dan. You know, especially since he was in the band for those great uh, early 90s shows. And uh, we touched base and we did it. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Bill liked to talk, had some good stories. Nice guy. And uh, I found out by connecting with him that he's in a band right now called Home at Last. Yeah, writing songs, playing vibes, and uh, even taking lead vocals on a few tunes. And uh, as the name would suggest, there is a Dan influence. So Go check them out. I put a link uh, to the album in the episode description. And without further ado, this is my conversation with Bill Ware. Enjoy. I was in a cover band called Aruba. <laughs> okay. In 1978, 79, I would guess. And uh, we played Peg. And that was just before disco kind of wiped out and and DJs kind of wiped out um, what we call them lounge bands, you know. I, you know, and you play, and that was our gig, you know, playing in um, uh, hotel lounges. I didn't know enough tunes to get the gigs in the local bands. And I didn't, um, a lot of the like wedding party type bands, they they didn't like black people. They they wouldn't mm-hmm. hire black people in those bands, and so uh, I started playing uh, Latin music. Yeah, and on bass because okay. nobody nobody needs a vibraphone player. <laughs> <laughs> like the very last hired, very first fired. Yeah, but uh, so yeah, so I started. That's how I know. I made a lot of my thing doing that, and and the only way I could play vibes was to move to New York. So um, you need to move to a city that had a, you know, big, yeah, you can't, you know, not in New Jersey. I mean, you know, 
were you a jazz uh, fan also? I mean, would you go into the city to see see players or? You no, know, um, my dad was kind of a cornball and very kind of strict and. So he, he wasn't a hipster at all. You know, he was very kind of a conservative guy um, in terms of his um, lifestyle, okay. <clears throat> not, not, not his politics or anything. Um, they were very, very, very liberal. And um, he was a little bit of a knucklehead when he was younger. <laughs> so he, he wanted to keep me mm. out of the, the taverns, as, the, <laughs> as he called them. <laughs> you know, are you going to be hanging out with the taverns with your, with your friends, you know? So um, I don't even think I went into a bar that I wasn't playing at until I was in my 30s. That's how oh wow unseen I was. Okay. I was just, you know, private person mostly. And, yeah. uh, and uh, so I didn't get to go to see a lot of really great. Although when I got into high school and I was serious about music, then my dad started to take me places and we would go to, um, uh, to, uh, the Village Gate, they had the Monday Salsabee's Jazz on Monday nights. I remember he took me there a couple of times and to see different shows. He started to take me to, to some shows, but, you know, they were really struggling, you know, to, to, to try and live in the, a middle life, middle, middle class lifestyle with a lower middle class salary. So, um, and my mom never worked. So my dad was like a single bread owner. So he was always stressed and it was money was always an issue. So we, we were kind of the poorer kids in, in town, huh. but we entertained ourselves playing music. We had a lot of music in the house. My dad played saxophone and, uh, in, and like I said, he was a little bit of a knucklehead when he was in his teens and music kind of saved him to make that okay. long story short. Um, so he was insistent on on everybody playing music in the family. Everybody had to play. You had to play something. My dad was kind of a hoarder, and he had friends who owned junkyards and pawn shops, and so he was always coming home and stuff. So we had one piano, and then we got another piano. So we put one piano in the basement, one piano on the, in the music room, <clears throat> and my sister would take lessons there, and then I would listen to the lessons and get them too in the piano in the basement. Except oh, wow. since I didn't formally study, I would just improvise. So I would, I would be jamming on like you know people you know, like that, Moonlight Sonata by you know. So you're riffing on her piano lessons. Yeah, I would be riffing on her piano. Oh, she would make her really angry because she worked really hard to learn the music, and she was always very you know read the music oriented. But I was the ear. Ear. I would just learn things by ear and and jam. I could jam, but I, reading music seemed frustrating to me because I I heard more than the notes that were on the page. Wow, really? I think that's good for a jazz player though to have that. Um, yeah, that's a good you know that's a good skill for for an improviser for sure. Yeah, I mean I could have been more diligent on the reading aspects, but that came sort of later. <laughs> Short, uh, young saxophone player Jay Rodriguez 
I met him when he was 14. We played together in a bunch of Latin bands and over the years. And he was, oh, you got to come to the city. You got to come to the city. Gotta. So I finally moved to the city and he got, we, I was in the city for like two months and we got an offer to go to Japan um, for two years. So uh, that's how we, we got the gig. And Jay, Jay I, I, somebody called me because of the band that I was in. I was in this band, Jazz Passengers. The Jazz Passengers were just starting to make a little noise in this sort of this new scene that was happening downtown, downtown jazz. You know, people like John Zorn and uh, Modesky Martin and Wood, um, a lot of, uh, tons of actors, Bill, Bill Frizzell, tons yeah. of musicians came out of that downtown scene, the Lounge Lizards <clears throat> and so I was getting a little reputation from that. And that's how Did you I play with it. any of those acts? The Lounge Lizards, I did a couple of movie scores. Oh yeah. Uh, Excess Baggage, I think, with Alicia Silverstone was one of the movies he did. That's uh, John Lurie, right? John Lurie, yeah. yeah and cool. he did some other ones with uh, Jim Jarmish films that were kind of popular down, you know, yeah. underground scene, I guess. But uh so um Anyway, so that's one of the reasons they heard about me. And then I I suggested the bass player, Andy McLeod, and the saxophone player, um, Jay Rodriguez, my friend, who had gotten me to New York. So they ended up using those. And we went to Japan for, for a bunch of years. And when I first, I mean, not a bunch of years. They wanted us for a bunch of years, but we ended yeah. up doing three months. It was a okay. great gig, seven nights, six nights a week, three sets a night. And they insisted that we rehearse. They want us to rehearse five days, five days a week. That's a lot. So it was like it was a crazy full time job. Yeah. But um, we ended up negotiating. I think we rehearsed uh, th two times a week or three times a week. So it was an interesting gig. It was a really good gig. And I this in Tokyo. Yeah. No. No. In Yokohama too. Okay. If it was in Tokyo, I would have been like, mm, maybe I will go for two. But it was in Yokohama, <laughs> which about forty five. It's like playing in Queens or something. You know, it's about forty five minutes or Jersey. You know, 45 minutes outside of the city. When we came back from Japan, I wanted to keep the band together because it was so smoking, you know, playing that many nights and playing the same songs, you know, um, the band was super tight and, and really good. Um, so I kept the band together, although I changed a few pieces. And, um, and then I had, I had a couple of regular gigs. I was, one of my regular gigs was in a place called the Metropolis Cafe. The Metropolis Cafe had a cafe and they also had a basement that they rent out. They rented out for different affairs and they were renting it out to this thing called Giant Step. A Giant Step was a collection, a couple of, was two guys basically. And it was basically um, of like a floating club. Okay. Since they didn't have a main spot. They would just go to different spots and they, that was their home for a minute, the Metropolis Cafe. And there was DJs jamming with like rappers and and musicians and 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 it was making this kind of new scene called acid jazz and you know so the record companies were all excited that this was going to be the next you know they are you know, the next big thing this is going to be the next thing so um there was a lot of attention to it and i was playing upstairs in the supper club playing jazz and i had you know on a good night i had like 40 people you know most of the time it was oh. like 10 to 30 people, you know, like a little tiny jazz supper club audience, you know, and 
downstairs they had like 800 <laughs> a line going out the door and around the block so we're playing our little thing and of course you know horn players being as they are they got their horn they can go anywhere they go down one guy would go down and jam oh you gotta go check the scene out and you know and that neighborhood there were a lot of models so the women at this at, at, at <laughs> giants that was just off yeah. the chain and they were like no you gotta come down here, man. <laughs> and so one by one i lost all my horn players were going down there <laughs> so eventually we all went down there anyways some of the guys from this one band called repercussions um their keyboard player was donald fagan's studio manager at River Sound, Donald Fagan had a recording studio in New right. York, River Sound, and and this kid Scott Barkham was his manager. He was the keyboard player for a band called Repercussions. A lot of the musicians that were in the rhythm section at Giant Step were from that band. When my horn players went down and joined them, that was the beginning of a band called Groove Collective. Okay. Now, Groove Collective, Giant Step, and repercussion they got a record deal with warner brothers and through scott's connection with uh don fagan scott of course was connected with their producer gary katz uh. gary katz took a, an interest in the whole acid jazz scene and brought us to warner brothers got it so we got a record deal with warner brothers well so um, I was kind of like the last guy because, you know, you can't schlep a vibraphone down through, <laughs> through like a crowd of 800 people to yeah. sit in somewhere, you know. So so that's how Gary Katz heard about me. And when Donald and Walter were looking for a percussionist, Gary said, well, you know what? This I got this vibraphone player and he plays some percussion enough you know for for what you need they didn't need you know they didn't need uh manola Bedrena. they just needed a guy to hit, boom you know to play some simple stuff and and not get in the way of anybody that's the main thing um and uh because there wasn't that much percussion and there wasn't that much vibes so they were like what's he gonna do you know is he just gonna <laughs> sit there sit out you know like they they were you know concerned with that and they didn't want to have to like write a whole vibraphone book you know just for the thing if so gary suggested me and he said any you know, he's a great soloist you can have some something else a different solo besides you know the occasional keyboard solo and guitar and tenor saxophone so they like that idea and amazingly um I had one CD that I recorded with the band that came back from Japan. Like I said, I changed a few pieces. I got another keyboard player and another, yeah. another drummer. Um, so uh, uh, I did a, a record that that was making a lot of noise. I got five stars and downbeat, um, got really good reviews. Oh. And they heard that CD and they hired me sight unseen. Wow. So um, I got the gig and I was like, what? And it... <laughs> wow it was just such a mind blower to me like oh I, I, you know because it was the gig and and then i got a lot of i got a lot of work from that because yeah people like yourself especially <laughs> music producers 
they wanted to hear the stories because you know these guys are mysteries no nobody knew them except if you hadn't worked with them you didn't know who they were they you know and they, they, their interviews are, are they're they're so like obtuse <laughs> you know with their personalities and their responses you used to you could sit through an interview and still not know what was happening so um there was so much mystery around Donald and Walter especially at this time this is in the early 90s when yep. they hadn't put out an album for what 13 years they hadn't toured that whole time they had just been you know doing the odd project here and there finally they announce 1993 it's happening the big yep. steel Dan union and you were added to that tour right this yeah, is what we're just, talking just to make I mean, it clear you know, like i said i'm i'm <laughs> i'm kind of a you know i'm not one of the guys who's got the musician paper reading everything downbeat and you know all digesting um <laughs> what other musicians are doing you know i've always been kind of like a scientist with music okay i'm, I'm interested in in the notes and and how stuff is put together not so much the personalities or what mm. this guy did to get where he it just didn't interest me at all so um sometimes I donald and walter trip. appreciated that about you because they're also very technical right um, i guess i i mean regrettably almost so i wish i was kind of more outgoing because i didn't really spend much time with them yeah you know especially now that walter's gone Right. Um, and he was such a cool guy. I wish I had hung out with him more, but I, you know, it's funny. Like Don, one time they never came to the after show party, the after show party, as I quickly learned, cause I, like I said, I never did one of these, uh, a list tours. I was always sort of a B list kind of guy, you know, you got your, you got your a list bands playing and, you know in uh like arenas and and stadiums you know and then you got your b-list groups like group collective you know you, you you may hit that sometimes as an opening act like we opened for um dave matthews across canada before and i think me and maybe chris potter because he wasn't that well known yet but all the other guys they've been doing that kind of stuff for for years you know yeah. peter erskine uh warren bernhard both those guys from steps ahead yeah uh, bob shepherd he was already a, a known solo wind artist on windham hill they had played with like Thomas. legends and put out yeah, albums and, with, with, yeah. you know with uh with the doobie brothers for years. They, were, <laughs> they were all you know they were this is their bread and butter so i was kind of a rookie that way so were you overwhelmed by this whole thing? I mean, not at all, because, yeah. you know, when you're young, you're cocky and you think you're better mm. than everybody else. Anyway. <laughs> it didn't face me that much. first rehearsal right so <laughs> so they rehearsed the rhythm section first you know and I, I heard this story sort of rumored when I was talking with them but I, then I heard read it later many times and I didn't realize that at the time but you know when they started touring they didn't have any music they didn't have any music no one had ever like taken the when time you, yeah, to when you when it. you go to the studio yeah, yeah. You, you know you can just sort of 
make stuff up and just yeah. boom, throw it on tape. There it is. You know, what do you need to chart for? You just created something cool. And then you just learn it there by ear. And, you know, you, you jam from there and add a part here, add a part there. I, I could easily sit in my studio and play around with something, not even know what notes I'm playing and have like the whole rhythm section done and everything. I'm like, well, wait a minute, what key am I? Now I better make a chart because I have no idea what I play. And that's the way, you know, in the studio, you can create like that. And, and, uh, and they had all this stuff and, and all the charts, I'm sure they had charts at the time or your sketches or whatever. Um, that's all gone. Right. So they didn't, they lost they it. They had to actually yeah. hire people to transcribe and wow. write charts. We had a guy there with a computer. He was chart man. And, uh, you know, he wanted well, it's to also, this way or that way. He was yeah. right there with the computer and make, make new charts of, of the stuff. I still have my book, but anyway, so, um, so they rehearsed the rhythm section for, I don't know, two weeks or three weeks or something like that. So the rhythm section, drums, bass, two pianos, um, two guitars, uh, they rehearsed for, for three weeks, you know? So then, then I, I got added in with what everybody else, with the singers, the background singers, he, Donald rehearsed also separately with the background singers. So they were already rehearsed and then Finally, the big full rehearsal, adding the horns, me, percussion, and uh, and everybody all together. So you know, like I said, they you know they had rehearsed this group and that pieces of it, and now we're putting it all together for the first rehearsal. And the first tune we played was um, Green Earrings, I think, right? And that's right. Okay, Donald says, okay. So the thing about this groove, and I've gone over this all with the rhythm section, and I think it was actually, I was the only one that, me and the horn players are the only ones that hadn't worked with him, but I'm the only one in the rhythm section. So he would say things to the whole band, but I'm thinking, well, I'm the only one that hasn't heard this, so why doesn't he just say it direct? But yeah, that's the way it was. They never really talked to me that much. Um, uh, so, uh, so they would never I, address you directly. It was more like, no, no, not well, not really at that point. Yeah. Certainly okay. not. I mean, this is the first, first song in the first rehearsal. Okay. So, um, he says, you know, the thing about this is like, um, the spaces and this was like, whenever Donald said anything, I remembered everything he said because it was so poignant and so like, it was like a revelation, like, holy shit, I never thought of that. <laughs> Gave me a whole nother respect for, you know, for, for, for other artists other than jazz, you know? Really? So he was, he was imparted a lot of wisdom to you even. Oh yeah. Because he had such genius ideas, small, wow. but genius. Like I just never thought of that, you know, like, and he was like the spaces in between is almost more important than a note. Like, even if you miss the note, don't land in the spaces because that's where the groove is created that I'm mm. trying to create. So it's like, wow, that's that's really cool. So we would play things like like on that tune, one, dun, dun, nothing on one, space, dun, 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 space, right. space, dun, 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 space, space, dun, 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 space. And you could see the way he would move on the piano. That's exactly <laughs> what he was feeling and hearing. And it was really cool that 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 was like wow okay when you're in presence of, of of brilliance you know so cool got it all right here we go so donald counted off one two 
one, two, three, four. Now I was really into like playing with Groove Collective. I was really starting to dig on a lot of really cool funk because I had never really spent a lot of time doing funk. And when I want to play music, I want to immerse myself in it and really see everything that's all about, right? So I was listening to a lot of funk. James Brown was like a master, you know. And uh, I met him and everything. And oh. and uh, he really has these great interlocking parts. So we start to tune it. I'm like, it's not happening. It's too heavy on that. So I start hitting the one. We get about 16 bars into the tune, Donald. Oh, um, Bill, don't put anything on the one. Oh, really? All right. But that part was really happening. <laughs> talking, right? And everybody else is like, oh my God, he's going to get, he's not even going to make it through the rehearsals. He's going to get fired. <laughs> so, okay. We start the tune again. I'm like, you know, play this corny part. We make it about 16 bars and Donald goes, Bill, go back to what you were doing. <laughs> like, yeah, I thought so. That was it. He never said another thing except there was one part I kept missing. Um, it's in trans. Um, it's in one of the Kamakiriad songs when uh, the the song about driving in the car. Trans Island Skyway. No, not Trans Island Skyway. I was thinking that too, but oh, Tea no. House, Tea House on the tracks. Yeah, Tea House on the tracks. We hit the spring ting just at dawn. I would miss that every fucking time. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Oh, every time I missed it, I just, you know, I had to like dot what I was doing and get the spring and be ready, you know, and I didn't, I was always spacing on the words and that, that part, I remember he reminded me a couple of times. I think I missed it. And uh, I, I always like when I'm goofing around with people, I said that, that spring, that, that got me fired. That's why they didn't hire me again because I kept missing that one. They hit the spring. Just that dawn. The most important note I hired me for, and I missed it every time. At one point, I remember the Madison Square Garden show. The music director, Drew Zing, came up to me and he was like, oh, we're getting complaints from the other musicians about you. And, oh, man, that I had never experienced anything like that in my entire life. I was so hurt. I was like, I was ready to quit. And then I was like, what are you kidding? <laughs> you can't quit. That's nuts. No, you nobody just quits like a gig like this. Just grin and bear it. All right. They don't like you. You're used to that. Well, as so, long as you won Donald over, I think that was the yeah, that was thing. the thing. And then the next, um, I expected to either be fired or something. So the next sound check, um, and uh, the the Drew came up to me before the the sound check and said, oh, "Don't worry about that. Just forget about it." Um, um, part of the complaint was is that I would smoke pot um, in the dressing room. And so um, they addressed that by making a smoking room 
And since I was the only one in the band that smoked, it was like having my own private dressing room. Everybody else was in there. Donald was in his room. Walter was his room. And I, I and the I think the singers had their room for the ladies. And I had my room. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a triumph. And it's like, yeah, you don't like it? Screw you. And so um that that, that was pretty cool. And then I was I was cool for the rest of the for the rest of the gigs and he he never said anything i just made my own parts up and uh and i really like those little counter rhythms you don't hear that many of them on the record on the record but one that sticks out really loud is, besides my solos and the actual vibe parts that were you know essential parts like in um asia right you know ding, 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 ding. and and then um shining stranger right you know it has that real part that was actually in the, you had like a long uh intro on sign and stranger right yeah that was my feature that was one of yeah. my features that a couple of one walter's tunes that one and uh the ending of um something well you did a fall of 92 yeah fall of 92 that was one of my one of yeah my features i have um a couple bootlegs from those years that i've listened to i actually did an entire episode on one of them with like two other guys where we just talk about the live steely dan experience and i we talked about your your parts like we, <laughs> cool. we all yeah. enjoy your vibe playing so anyway yeah that was it was it was <laughs> certainly a, a lot of fun and uh like i said a great learning experience i love the way um donald will he has a whole uh i don't know if you've seen his, the he, he at the time this was really big was guys um putting together um, video about their method and Donald had one about how he writes a song you know and everything starts with a blues every single song he writes starts with the blues so you you sort of like to find that groove and then move to the four chord <clears throat> like you do in a blues <clears throat> right and then he goes from there you know the song will grow you know from there and then he'll he'll you know once you have the melody zeroed in He'll try this chord, that chord, this chord. Okay, that's the normal way. Okay, let me see how far away from that I can move. And mm. and I use that compositional tool to today. Oh, really? When I, when I write for, uh, you know, especially, you know, I'm writing for this rock band, Home at Last now. And when I write stuff, it's that's my that's one of my main processes, especially for popular type music or even even for um. Even for my jazz, um, you know, don't just go for the standard, okay, the standard chord, you know, see what else makes that melody because the, that chord may influence the next chord. If you come up with some a hipper chord here, you know, whatever follows that now, now, now will suddenly sound different to you and you'll find yourself really coming up with some great harmonies. One of my favorite exercises in college, as a matter of fact, was that very thing was taking a melody, take a very well-known melody and come up with 10 different harmonizations for it. Mm. And I remember I picked Oh Susanna, which is super easy to, to, <laughs> yeah. to And I was surprised. It was when I started the exercise, I was like, this is dumb. You know, like, what's the point of this? And when I started doing it, I was surprised at how many different ways you could harmonize it and how many 
different feelings. You could give it a happy feeling, a sad feeling, a, a surprise feeling, a, a, just by changing the harmony. And that, 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 I think that's what I love about Steely Dan the most is um, the inventiveness and the harmonies. They don't yeah. just go for the standard thing. Uh, they go as far away from the standard thing in in every word and every 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 chord, you know. So that's what makes it pop or stand out. Is just yeah, like, that's what makes it so rich, really. Yeah, in, you know, that and the rhythm. I mean, Donald is the feel meister. I can tell another story. Here's another one of my favorite stories. Um, okay. uh, one time at rehearsal, we were playing one of Walter's tunes, I think. It might have been Fall in 92. It was one of the slower ones. It was like 90, you know, funky, you know, look down tempo, funky stuff that they do. And Donald said, yeah, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a sound check, actually. You know, last night, it felt a little sluggish to me. So I thought we'd run over that in sound check. So the night before, I don't remember exactly. I think it was 93 beats per minute. So let's try 94 beats per minute. So we play the whole song. Eh, let's try 95. <laughs> play the whole song. Let's get crazy. Let's push it up to 97. Play the whole <laughs> song. Ah, it's too fast. Let's try 95 again. 95. Play the whole song. Now let's go back to the way we had. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, really feel that Donald just like, he really like feels the shit. Um, yeah. So it was that incremental. That, that was another you know, revelation to me, knowing the feel of things that acutely. Um, and then uh, another example was one night, it was after the sound check, and there, you know, it was kind of like, like when you do shows, you know, you have the notes, the, the notes, the night, the day before the next show, you run over the notes from the night show before, you know? Yeah. And uh, that was always the sound check. It was kind of like the notes of the show before. And if there was anything that was weird, they would go over it. So um, uh, Donald says, you know, when we played, it was like Black Friday, I think it was. Yeah. We played Black Friday last night. Sure felt weird to me. It's like, it's, it's like not moving. It was not, I don't know what it was, but it was not, it didn't feel good. And Peter said, oh, I think that was probably me. <laughs> Peter Erskine had this really super fancy, especially at those days, it was super fancy click track thing that he could program the click for each tune. And, you know, I guess press one button and go, okay, here's, uh, you know, reeling in the ears. Um, boom. And it would have his click track all set up. Got it. Um, and what he would do was he, he would have it going to, to, and then one, two, three, four, once he started the tune, um, it would stay in for about 16, eight, 16, you know, bars till, till, till it was solid and then drop out. And then it's on him that night. He, for that tune, I think it was black Friday. He left the click on for the whole tune. Uh, Donald, Donald was the only one who noticed. Wow. And Donald picked up on that. Oh, he noticed it. He, he couldn't put a finger oh, on it, but he felt again. something. Yeah, he couldn't. <laughs> it just didn't feel right. It wasn't like something. I don't know what it was, but I can't. And that's what it was. Peter was like, oh, I think that was me. And that's when I was like, wow, this guy. You so know, he was so I, acutely aware of the subtle Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
some masters like that, they are super, you know, I saw something today. We we're talking about Butch Morris. I don't know if you heard of Butch Morris. He was one of the downtown kind of guys, you know, avant-garde. He invented this thing called conduction where he can, he can have improv improvisation happen by this whole method of symbols and hand symbols and, and baton use okay. to, to improvise an entire orchestra. So it's quite an amazing thing oh. to be a part of. And uh, he was another cat like that. I mean, yeah. hear everything, feel everything. No. I mean, if you move your leg to the left, you know, like he was just aware, so acutely aware musically. It's, it's so wonderful to be around musicians like that. And, and, you know, I try and, I try and emulate that. I, I, I don't know if my talent is, is, is that great but that's definitely um something that i aspire to be on that level i think they have a term for guys like that in in the studio in germany i worked with a guy who was like that and they call them meister singers and they're the guy in in like a recording session that like for a symphonic orchestra or a big band i mean they they can handle you know 30 pieces and they're the guy that sits above the the mat, the main engineer and knows everything that's happening every single microphone every single instrument every single sound everything that's happening on the board for the recording every assistant every he's in charge of it all yeah and they, they got you know they're they're also called golden ear because okay. they're just so 20 to 20 and beyond hearing wise they they every little thing and it, it's just so amazing to work with people like that. So Donald was like essentially like uh, conducting you guys like an orchestra almost, right? Would you say that's accurate um, or no? At rehearsals, for sure, you know, uh, he called all the shots pretty much. You know, he sometimes he would confer with Walter on, you know, this or that little detail or something. Or, um, but pretty much even though they kind of had the first year they had drew as supposedly the musical director but i think he was a buffer in case there was any you know why did they drop drew after 93 do you know i don't know i guess <clears throat> to have a 90 flavor in guitar yeah. um some people didn't particularly like drew style um he's a phenomenal guitar player and musician yeah um he reminds me of like some of the cuban musicians i mean the guy never i never saw him without his guitar he and he had this little practice setup that he with like a multi-track system which you know, like in 93 that was you know a portable little practice thing where he could have plug his earphones in it and play along with music that was kind of, you know, high tech, but he was always practicing, just always playing. The guy was just, I mean, he could play the original guitar player, guitar solos. He he had them all, all the original solos memorized and he could play them, you know, with the same proficiency as the original. I mean, the guy is just sick as a musician. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't know. I if I had a guy like that in my band, I, I would hold on to <laughs> everybody. You know, these guys are, you know, whatever. I don't know. They 
eventually he you know he he settled on a band but i guess you know if you if you had the money and the ability and you had the record company behind them so they feeding in some extra money and because they were trying to push these guys and make it just like give them everything they want so that they're so excited about touring that and i guess it worked you know because donald's still at it <laughs> um yeah, I saw that Drew Zing is actually doing some sort of Steely Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that out in yeah. California. Yeah. But he was, I, I just, he was so ridiculous. But, um, and then Wadinius comes in in 94. How was he? Yeah, George, <clears throat> George was more of a, um, less, a little less, I don't know, technical, as I yeah. guess some people would say. Um, and more, a little more, I don't know soulful a little more ear a little less um um uh, pattern stuff and a little more ear loose uh, to me a looser kind of feel um great guitar i used him on some of my uh, on on one of my projects we did um the fed at the fez we recorded together and he recorded a song called the rain he he just had the music yeah sight reading it looked it over okay yeah let's uh roll the thing and i'll practice with it so i told the engineer roll you know record this he did a practice run and killed it and he goes okay so we can do another one and then i can go back and fix stuff if you want i was like you're done (laughs) (laughs) that was brilliant don't touch it i just love that first performance where you're you know reaching for stuff and you know and he was kind of like that kind of guy. Like he could just pull that off, pull stuff off. And I, yeah, I love that quality. Yeah. How was uh, Walter? I mean, what were your impressions of him? Um, super smart, super observant. Nothing went unnoticed. One of my favorite examples is we're playing at the George in Seattle and uh, George Washington, the Gorge in George Washington fantastic place as a matter of fact they used the shot from that for the back of the album cover alive in america so um that's the george from the you know a view of the stage because behind they use for this backdrop this you have the gorge there beautiful it looks almost like a like a green um grand canyon and then you play during sunset so that's the backdrop. It's just a brilliant idea and really cool. And I have some relatives in Seattle and they were at the show. So I was all excited about that. And um, it was super hot. And some of the stages we played on when it was hot, like Arizona, they had an outdoor air conditioned stage. I can only imagine how much energy that's wasting. But um, it wasn't there and it was super hot. And I remember, and I had this skimpy I was I would wear vests with no shirt because I like to have my arms free to play percussion and you know I played congas yeah. and and uh, and I had a whole percussion rig from LP you know with you know wind chimes and cong- and uh, cowbells and lots of tambourines and all kinds of little noisemakers all that, all that kind of stuff toys um so you know I'm jumping around a lot and in those days I played um I stood and played. <clears throat> uh so uh you know i'm dancing around and jumping around back there and you it's hot so i 
I had planned to wear this really skimpy vest <laughs> and shorts. And I, I think I had these sandals. That, I mean, Birkenstocks or some sandals that I was yeah. wearing. But, and when I, we're hanging out in the dressing room, and of course, I'm really super stoned. My cousin was there. He had some killer ass <laughs> weed and uh, super stoned. And it's time to um, do the sound check. So I go out on sound check. And I realized that the T-shirt that I had on and underwear that I had wasn't that much different from the what I was going to wear on the show. So <laughs> it's a goof. I just went out in the show in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Walter, who does not miss a trick, I said, they're not going to notice. Nobody even notices me back here. Yeah. And Walter introduced me to the audience as the scantily clad Bill Ware. <laughs> so that guy, you know, he's just cool as can be looking around, but don't let that cool misdemeanor demeanor fool you because he um he sees everything and knows I very what a, he would always make these, you know, he would introduce the band, you know. It was, you know, the format was pretty much the same. You know, we do this uh, overture, which was a written overture, a bunch of the songs, like like a show overture, you know, with yeah. the hints at all the different songs and some songs that we actually didn't even play. It was like a medley and, uh, of... Uh, yeah, a medley know, of songs, songs, basically, yeah. you know. It started out with that. From, what's that? Royal Scam. Yeah, Royal Scam, right? Yeah. yeah, we didn't play Royal Scam. We played Third World Man, but but it 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 was sort of built off of Royal Scam. So and they got to hint at tunes that we actually weren't on the set list and everything. It was a cool idea. And then the second set would start out with this jazz rock composition by one of Warren Bernhardt's friends called Tuz's Shadow. So every show would start out that, and they they introduced the you know we do I don't know three songs, and then Walter would introduce the band and talk. And uh, so he would always have some quip to say about, you know, and, you know, we always talk about, no, we, we introduce the saxophone players and always say, we have no kazoos, no trombones, no trumpets, no sousaphones, no kazoos, <laughs> no penny you know, whistles, no nose whistles. We have tenors <laughs> every night. You know, it would, it would be some little different spin on that, but basically the same format. And he would always introduce me with with some, you know, little quip that would happen and that was that one and like my feature was sign sign and stranger yeah um, intro to sign and stranger they stretched that out a little bit and gave me a, a solo in there because they were trying to find spots for me to solo i was getting a lot of good press you know me and drew got a lot of good press too yeah even a lot of the critics were panning the show because they're oh they're just rehashing their their, their hits well duh that's what people want to hear you idiots but anyway <laughs> critics what a joke. So one, I figure, you know, signing stranger, you know, I don't, I'm not even sure what that song is about. But <laughs> it's about, I it's figured, a science fiction song. It's about a, a guy on the, on another planet on Mizar five. Right, right. What, but, but you know what, what it's really about, you know, but anyways, right. I just, you know, signing stranger. And I always thought what's, I'm a note guy. I'm strictly harmony note guy. I know 12 things. I always say C, C sharp, D, D sharp, E, F. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
what can I, how can I make this really signature sign in stranger solo? So I decided to start my solo. It's like a C7 groove, you know, it's over, over a C7, you know, that's okay. the basic chord behind on that intro where I solo over. So I decided, well, what's the strangest note that I could possibly play in a C7 that'll sound good. And it's either be natural or C sharp. So I would always start on my my solo wham, right? Just with a loud octave roll C sharp. And then go into my solo. <laughs> Sign is train. I like strange note, bam, and then let that launch my solo from there. I like to I won't plan out whole solos, but I'll I'll give myself a launching point, you know, and maybe an ending point or something like that. So and then I expand on that, maybe make it A over C or do some kind of harmonic, you know, and, you know, modulation scheme off of that. But always with that. So he introduced me as Bill Ware, who touches a solo. When he starts a solo, he starts out and works his way back in. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's just like, that was Walter. He, he, yeah. he really could understand stuff quick and digest digest it deeply you know like he wasn't a little surface guy you know he and you wouldn't see him necessarily really. showing that he was taking no notice, no no totally would. the opposite totally yeah. the opposite like 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 the guy in the corner who looks like he has no idea what's going on and he's actually <laughs> running all the shit you know like you know he's one of those dudes <laughs> <laughs>